Hello again and welcome into Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. One state rep wants to limit school suspensions for students up to third grade. How big of a demand is there for pot in Missouri? Those stories are coming up this month. The National Park Service is mixing storytelling, music, and civil rights history at the Gateway Arch in St. Louis. Pam Sanfilippo talks to Ashley Bird about the No Tears Project. The No Tears Project started was a group of uh, artists and activists and community leaders wanted to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Little Rock Nine integrating Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. And they uh, worked with pianist composer Christopher Parker and vocalist Kelly Hurt to produce a musical composition to honor the Little Rock Nine. And subsequent to that, they realized that this actually was a larger story that could be told and shared and have done the same type of program in other locations. Our deputy director here at the park, Tarona Armstrong, used to work at Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, National Park Service site. And so she was familiar with this project and she kind of brought it to uh, my attention and uh, that started the effort to get them to come here so they'll perform some of those works from that first project but also creating some new ones that connect to the old courthouse and the important stories of Dred and Harriet Scott here. So the Gateway Arch National Park covers a, a good amount of space. Are, is this happening on site? Are these, these concerts and exhibitions, where are they happening? So the panel discussions and a school education concert will be here on site in our, we call it Tucker Theater in the uh, theater space in the visitor center under the arch. And but the actual performances of the concert, dance, and uh, poetry reading will be at Jazz St. Louis at their uh, Faring Jazz Bistro on Washington Avenue. All right. And there's quite a few events. So I would just urge people to go to what website to get when and where, because this is happening throughout April. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Uh, more tied toward, at this point, toward the end of April, uh, beginning on April 26th, will be our next panel discussion here at the park. And that one is called uh, Recognition Before Reconciliation. And the speakers for that program will be Percy Green, who is founding member of Action here in St. Louis, but he also, during the construction of the arch, uh, protested that no African Americans were hired to work on the project, even though it was a federal contract, and him be part of that panel. Uh, Little Rock Nine member Elizabeth Eckford will be here. And Lynn Jackson, who is the great-great-granddaughter of Dred and Harriet Scott, will also be part of that panel. Um, we'll have Robin White, who is 
the superintendent down at Central High School in Little Rock, and the panel will be moderated by Carol Daniels here in St. Louis. So that is going to be a great discussion between that group of individuals. Then on Thursday, April 27th, there will be a concert for St. Louis public school students so that teachers can sign up to bring their students here kind of on a first-come, first-served basis. And then the actual concerts, there will be four of them, two on Friday night, April uh, 28th, and two on Saturday night, April 29th. There is a lot going on there, so we have to go <laughs> yeah. to the go to the, uh, the Gateway Arch uh, website for that. Best place is the park's website, which is nps.gov/jeff from our old name, Jefferson National Expansion Memorial, and uh, from there you can go to plan your visit things to do in upcoming events and they can they can get to those events. You're listening to Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm I'm Ashley Bird and we're talking with Gateway Arch National Parks, Pam Sanfilippo. Thank you, Pam, for joining us and, and filling us in on this. This is a, a massive undertaking but rooted uh, with jazz and with civil rights history and all of that. You say this is something that is sort of unique and is being copied by other places? Well, it's being uh, shared in other communities. So this No Tears project that started in Little Rock, Arkansas, they've also done programs down in New Orleans with uh, New Orleans Jazz National Historic Site and in Tulsa, Oklahoma to commemorate the riots there. And then I believe they're also going to Nashville. So each taking the communities that have these important civil rights stories as St. Louis does and adding to this original concept of how we can have social change through the arts. And this is something that the the national park here and the national parks everywhere, so this is beyond just the history of the site itself. It obviously is a part of a mission of the the parks, I guess, to expand its work and understanding reach into the communities. Definitely. Uh, The park service, you know, gets lots of visitors and we, we honor and commemorate these important stories. That's why these places exist, but it's not, only about telling about the past. It's helping visitors find their connection and relevance to these stories today and and understand how we got to where we are today through some of these important stories from the past. So this is one of many programs at the Gateway Arch National Park. Pam, uh, I'm sure the the park's going to take on more things like this as it's, you know, growing and, and being renovated, like with the uh, the courthouse there, um, it's part of, a, I guess, a growing mission. It is. Uh, again, stories that the park has told for many years, but how do we share those beyond the visitors that are coming to take the tram ride to the top? You know, we've got the all-new exhibits here at the Arch that tell 
the story of westward expansion from multiple perspectives, whether it's those immigrants who are coming in and headed west um, to start new lives, or from the other side, the impact that those movements had on the indigenous population that was in this area and the challenges that they faced. Um, So expanding our stories to be more inclusive of everyone who was here and and kind of telling those challenging and, and difficult stories. We've certainly done lots up at the old courthouse in the past with telling the story of Dred and Harriet Scott and the hundreds of other enslaved individuals who sought their freedom through uh, suing in the court system. Um, When we finish the renovations, we'll be able to tell more of those stories and in uh, ways that we haven't been able to in the past. And, And so much of that is uh, thanks to the support that the park has from its its many partners. Uh, so I would be remiss if I didn't include uh, how important their support, whether it's Jefferson National Parks Association or Gateway Arch Park Foundation, um, they truly help us share those stories. Pam. San Filippo, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing this uh, about the No Tears Project in St. Louis and all of its different performances and panels and things like that. To learn more, go to the nationalparkservice.gov and look up the Gateway Arch National Park and, and find out more as this happens in late April. Also want to remind folks, if they want to hear this again, you can grab this interview off of Show Me Today, our podcast. Just look for Show Me Today wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for being with us on Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Hi, Grandma. Can Nina come over for dinner? Sure. I've been meaning to ask you, what would happen if someone offered you a drink? Grandma! If anyone ever does, I want you to say, no, I have too much respect for my family and I don't want to get in trouble. I promise, Grandma. They really do hear you. For tips on what to say, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. That's underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This message brought to you by SAMHSA and this station. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past a turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's It's our roads. It's It's our safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. Women hear a lot about self-care these days. Advice on ways to relax, exercise, eat healthy, and more. Those are all great. But one of the most important self-care steps we can take is making sure we're financially secure later in life. That means saving money for retirement. It's never too late to start. And it's the kind of self-care that brings peace of mind that lasts. For small steps you can take to save for retirement, visit WeSaySaveIt.org. That's WeSaySaveIt.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Ashiro's work is never done. You care for the house, the kids, and our future. We're so grateful for all you do. Now it's time to care for yourself and save a little more for retirement. A free three-minute online chat can give you the personalized tips you need to boost your retirement savings now. 
Visit aciaretirement.org today. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. This is Show Me Today. Media reports indicate a demand for Missouri's pot supply has increased tenfold. They also say that prices have increased and dispensaries are having a hard time keeping up with the demand. But is that true? It depends on who you ask. Anthony Morabeth tries to hash out the truth with Jack Cardetti with the Missouri Cannabis Trade Association. Back in November, when Missourians went to the polls and they legalized uh, adult-use marijuana here in Missouri, we knew that the implementation from a medical market to an adult-use market, you know, we've seen a lot of states stumble when they've tried to do that. Well, fast forward 87 days later, and that's when the first uh, adult-use sales took place in Missouri. And in the month of February alone, February being the shortest month of the the year and them not being able to sell the entire month for adult use, um, $103 million worth of marijuana was sold at Missouri dispensaries. And so we think that's a testament to the program that was built by the 200,000 Missouri patients and the small businesses that support them. So let's talk about Missouri's cannabis supply. Um, I'm reading that it's not keeping up with demand, and I'm reading as a result of that, prices are going up. What's your take and what's your analysis on that? Yeah, sure. Back in 2022, um, the Missouri Cannabis Program produced 92,000 more pounds than it sold. So there was a significant oversupply in the market uh, back when we were a medical program. Fast forward to today, and obviously the demand uh, has increased. And so what we're seeing, though, is, you know, a lot of people have predicted huge uh, price, uh, you know, spike in prices. We haven't seen that. At most, what we've seen is 5 to 10 percent. And we even think that is a fairly short term phenomenon. What you have here is Missouri has licensed 50 cultivators around the state to, to grow uh, marijuana in Missouri. They've also, uh, and those are up and operational. Another 17 have their licenses and are currently uh, starting to produce but haven't hit the market yet. Uh, in addition to that, a lot of the 50 cultivators here um, weren't producing at their maximum capacity because of those oversupply issues in the medical market. Once the November uh, election took place, they're starting to build those out. So I think any type of shortages uh, uh, that we see here is going to be a very short-term phenomenon. And quite frankly, Missouri has the most affordable um, 
you know, marijuana, uh, when you look at the Midwest, I mean, there was a article just in the last two weeks from the Chicago Tribune that really shows the prices in Missouri are 20 to 30 percent lower than they are in our neighboring state of Illinois. On that same note, I would have to assume that there have been that one of the reasons why demand has increased so much is because you have states like Illinois, where, as you said, there's a big price differential. But also at the same time, the the other neighboring states haven't legalized it. And I'm willing to bet that there's a lot of uh, residents there that have come to Missouri and uh, purchased and partaken. Yeah, we're particularly seeing that, obviously, on the western side of the state where, you know, around State Line Road in Kansas City, where Kansas obviously doesn't even have a medical program. So we certainly are seeing some Canada, uh, Canada tourism come over the lines. But one of the things we're seeing in St. Louis is actually Missouri staying home and purchasing it here. Up until February, we saw a lot of Missourians that were going over uh, the Mississippi River to Illinois to purchase their marijuana products. That's not happening. In fact, Illinois, out-of-state sales are down 15% from January to February. So that tells us that Missourians are staying at home, shopping locally, and supporting the thousands of new jobs that are being created right here in Missouri because of marijuana legalization. So let's talk about the supply. You had brought it up previously. Are there problems getting supply? And um, what was the supply then? And what is it now, now that we're talking in April? Yeah, so we, um, you know, in in 2022, like I said, there was 92,000 more pounds produced than sold. So significant oversupply. Uh, Demand obviously has increased. And so we think over the next few months when new cultivators come online and existing cultivators expand, that then they will more than meet, meet that demand. I mean, one of the things that's really been a hallmark of the Missouri program so far is that, you know, you really have the five different factors, right? You have affordability, which also takes into account taxes. Many, many states, quite frankly, tax marijuana too high. In, in those cases, people are still going to take advantage of the illicit market, you know, the untested, unregulated market. When you keep your taxes lower, like they are in Missouri, 6%, then that actually incentivizes people to come into the regulated program. So a lot of affordability. Also, access. You know, even today in Colorado, more than half the cities and counties uh, ban marijuana dispensaries. We don't have that here in Missouri. Missouri communities are embracing having marijuana facilities in their communities, the jobs they create, the significant economic revenue. So we have 196 dispensaries throughout the state of Missouri, not you know just in the, the urban core here. And so that gives people lots and lots of access. You also have selection. We go into dispensary today. It won't just be marijuana flower. You're going to find all different types of pro- products, edibles, tinctures, topicals, vapes, a-, a lot of different things. Then there's obviously the supply. We have a lot more growers than they do, frankly, over in Illinois and a lot of other states. Uh, and then the last thing we pride ourselves on is quality. There's really some quality products here in Missouri. There's some very smart entrepreneurs that have gotten involved here and really doing a nice job. So we think the Missouri program's off to a very, very strong start. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking with Jack Cardetti, spokesman for the Missouri Cannabis Trade Association, talking about the state of cannabis, the state of marijuana, and what that has looked like since its legalization and since you now have been able to purchase it and consume it for quite some time. So um, with that being said, uh, 
with regard to uh, the prices increase and the demand and, and, and things like that, are there certain you, you brought this up recently, but I actually have a follow up. Are there certain types of the product that are hard to come by as in? Is it harder to find, for example, flour versus, say, edibles or tinctures or things like that? I, I'm just curious. Yeah, the, the one little category that we've seen sort of a, a fairly high uh, increase in demand and where supply is now catching up and will catch up over the next several months is on pre-rolled flour, right? So a pre-rolled joint uh, seems to be in really, really high demand. And so obviously the market is going to react to that and you'll see more of those produced, I think, over the next 60 days. I mean, the the question becomes, how come, I hate to ask this question, how come Big Tobacco doesn't get involved in, in doing that sort of thing? Well, so now you'll remember, this is still a, even though it's legal in 21 states, including Missouri, it's still federally illegal. What that means is that everything, all economic activity, all activity in growing, manufacturing, and dispensing the products all must take place inside Missouri's uh, state lines, right? So you wouldn't see somebody producing something in one state and bringing it across to sell it in another state. That can't happen as long as this is federally illegal. Other things I wanted to ask you in regard to some of the stories I've been reading to sort of uh, offset the price increase and uh, the cost of producing and things like that. I was reading the cultivators have basically chosen to turn off their grow rooms, trim staff, uh, things like that. It seems like each cultivator is kind of dealing with it uh, differently. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's a report out just this morning about how just since November after the passage, thousands of new jobs have been created uh, in this industry because whether you're a cultivator a manufacturer or a dispensary in Missouri, uh, there is huge demand and people are hiring right and left. So we think that that's really a positive thing. There are now more than 13,000 people that work directly in this industry here in Missouri. And we think those numbers will go up significantly over the next year. So I think a good question and a discussion to conclude this uh, this interview would be prices have gone up, demand has gone up, but it's not as bad as what some people are making it out to be, right? Yeah, and in Missouri, quite frankly, still far more affordable than it is in over in Illinois and uh, in, in our neighboring state. This is a customer-friendly program here in the state of Missouri. There are low taxes. There's lots of access. I mean, one of the things that you see in states, right, is that while they legalize it, they really leave it up to the cities to determine whether or not they're going to have dispensaries in their communities. And so what you end up having in a state like Colorado, where it's still legal, is some people still have to drive a couple hours to access a dispensary. We're not seeing that here in the uh, state of Missouri. Because there are 196 dispensaries, there's plenty of access out there. When you get there, there's plenty of selection. Uh, and quite frankly, the prices are very, very affordable in comparison to other states. So it's something we think is working well. I think that's why you saw the, the excitement around the, the February uh, opening up of sales. And we think that excitement will only continue to increase. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past a turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's, it's our roads. roads. It's, it's our, our safety. safety. 
visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. If you're talking, they will hear you. Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No, thanks. I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact. Like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control. And priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Email from school about the incident today. Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on? None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night, too. Did you have a clue? No, but you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids. Half the time, it's rumors. It can be hard to tell sometimes, but if you're ever concerned about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult. Mom or me, a teacher, coach, school counselor, someone you know and trust. Dad, no kid is going to tell an adult about that kind of stuff. I get it, but if we don't know, we can't help. Speaking up about a problem, that's what helping a friend is all about. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You're listening to Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm your host, Bill Pollack. Missouri is reviewing whether to limit school suspensions for students up to third grade. Elisa Nelson talks to State Representative Ian Mackey. 
the bill sponsor. This bill is aimed at reducing and limiting the number of suspensions of students in grades kindergarten through third grade. It's sometimes referred to as a ban on suspensions in students in those grades. It's not an outright ban, but it is a bill that seeks to both limit the number of suspensions that students at that age level go through and also reporting, requiring reporting of data and information related to those suspensions to the State Department of Education so that we can get a better understanding of the reasons why students are being suspended and how frequently. Tell me about the limits. What would it be limited to? Sure. So we want to make sure that when students, especially in the younger years, are suspended from school, that it's for a reason uh, that's warranted, such as an act of school violence. So uh, students who are engaging in violence or physical behavior that's a, a cause of violence, those are students that certainly are still going to be suspended and, and should be. However, we heard story after story after story, both uh, in email and in parents who showed up to testify at the committee hearing. There's also been multiple news reports of uh, parents whose students, young students especially, are suspended for plenty of nonviolent acts, um, things that involve typical childlike behavior, uh, maybe not listening, maybe talking back, uh, maybe making gestures that are uh, unwanted and things like that, um, and so, or making verbal threats but not understanding the impact of those verbal threats. I heard from a mother whose uh, five-year-old kindergartner said that uh, he was going to bring a bomb to school. Um, that five-year-old kindergartner doesn't have access to a bomb, doesn't really know what an actual bomb is, and certainly had no intention of actually bringing one to school or causing any harm to anyone. Um, kindergartners, first graders getting in verbal altercations with one another and saying things such as, I'm going to kill you. Um, those are things adults say all the time in jest, not meaning that they're actually going to commit murder. Um, and those are certainly not reasons why uh, students, especially in the younger years, should be suspended. So we are trying to move away from so-called zero tolerance policies, which uh, limit and restrict uh, the ability of school administrators to make decisions on a case-by-case -case basis. We want folks in school settings to be making decisions on a case-by-case -case basis. We heard plenty of stories of uh, parents of, uh, whose child was the victim in a fight, was the victim in a physical altercation. They were the one that got hit, but because they were involved in an altercation, the reading of the zero tolerance policy was that they too would be suspended. Um, I think that's a story and a scenario that many folks uh, who have school-aged children are familiar with. And so we're trying to, those are those suspensions we're trying to prevent and limit. And so we need to move away from zero tolerance policies and move back to uh, administrators using independent judgment on a case-by-case -case basis when it comes to suspensions. So, so if a kid has a meltdown, let's say. Right. Can they get like a, a cool off pass? Right. Let's say, um, go to the principal's office just to cool down for a bit. Is that, it's, is that a part of this at all? Absolutely. So the goal is to uh, use uh, everything else, uh, all the other tools in the toolbox, all the other alternatives that are at the ready before moving to suspension. So uh, there are a lot of schools who uh, have implemented spaces, you know, sensory rooms uh, with large bean bags, with uh, bags to punch at or kick at, with um, things to, you know, get out that sort of uh, physical exertion that young children especially need to routinely get out. Maybe yell and holler. Maybe do whatever you need to do right to get out. Um, you know, children communicate in a number of different ways and in the younger years, vocabulary is quite limited and when you're uh, limited in how you can communicate with your vocabulary, you often communicate in other forms. Sometimes that's with words um, that are, you know, unwanted in the classroom context and sometimes that's with little five-year-old fists or little five-year-old feet who want to kick, right? And so um, it's important that those students are given the opportunity to de-escalate 
escalate their behavior in a productive way. Suspensions don't end the problem. They end the problem in an extremely temporary manner right there on the spot in the moment, but they don't help that child understand what led, or the teacher for that matter, or anybody understand what led to that behavior and how it can be prevented in the future. So it's about finding out what the cause of these behaviors are and how to prevent future uh, challenging behavior. Because the suspensions don't prevent future challenging behavior, all they do is get rid of the current moment, and that's it. Now, would this be for out-of-school suspensions, in-school, both? That's uh, so great question, and I should have started off by saying this is really o- this is only out-of-school suspensions. So um, this is only a-, a bill targeted at reducing and limiting the number of out-of-school suspensions for students in these grades. But that said, we have seen school districts around the state. So the city of St. Louis, for example, in 2016, outlawed school suspensions for students in these grades. They also, when they did that, and by the way, they're not looking at revisiting that policy. That policy has worked in that large district. It has worked well for them. They continue on that path. But also, incidentally, they have also seen a decrease in in in-school suspensions. And we see this in data around the country. At a district level, uh, the uh, second largest district in the country, um, Los Angeles Unified Public School District, the second largest in the country, got rid of -of out-of-school suspensions in large part for students in these grades, also saw a large reduction in in in-school suspensions because they shifted their culture and their mindset. They took a different approach to discipline, to to classroom management, and they got, they got, they, they went through problem solving. They tried to solve the problem. What is causing this behavior? What is causing the challenging behavior and how can we fix that? Rather than being reactionary and just responding to that behavior, which tends to escalate the problem, trying to trying to actually solve the root problem is what works. And when we see out-of-school suspensions limited, it ends up having the result that in-school suspensions are limited as well. All right. State Representative Ian Mackey of St. Louis has a bill that deals with uh, suspensions in schools, and he's joining Show Me Today to talk about the bill. Uh, So it was heard in committee. Talk to me. What are some of the opposing arguments that you heard about the bill? Sure. So a lot of the uh, arguments are based on, and and this isn't a critique on your profession by any means, but they're sometimes based on headlines. and They're sometimes based on short snippets, um, you know, uh, one 30-second reactionary um, uh, responses. So, you know, there have been headlines. uh, There have been um, statements calling this a ban on K-3 suspensions, and folks see that. Um, Sometimes it's teachers who see that um, who are teachers in that grade level and they think, oh my gosh, we can't do that because, you know, there are times where we must suspend a student for engaging in violent behavior. And so um, I want folks to understand that this is not, um, you know, if we wanted to ban uh, suspensions, we could write a bill that was one sentence long or maybe one paragraph long and we we would try that. This bill is 10 pages long. It is filled with uh, bipartisan input from folks on the committee and folks not on the committee. It is filled um, with a lot of suggestions, a lot of folks who have spent a lot of years in the classroom and years in administration who've put their input, time, and effort into this bill. Um, a lot of advocates and folks as well um, have spent time crafting this this bill that's 10 pages long. Uh, it is not an outright ban on suspensions, and so I hope folks who might uh, see that or hear that from someone um, uh, take a little bit of a deeper dive and try to understand what the bill actually does. And to be honest, I've, I've gone through that process in conversation with folks who were initially opposed, and many of them have ended up supporting the bill. 
I'm curious if discussion on the bill in committee has uh, also gone into the racial inequalities that can sometimes exist when it comes to suspension. Sure. Missouri is a leader in the nation when it comes to our disparities uh, for both black children who are suspended at a higher rate than their white peers, as well as children with disabilities who are suspended at a higher rate. Um, the, the, it's, it's over 100 days on average more that black students are suspended than white students. It is an astronomical disparity. And uh, that's not necessarily to go placing blame on people for, you know, engaging in some sort of intentional racist behavior and, and insisting that black kids be suspended more. It's just simply a result of the uh, inherent biases that exist, um, the, the inherent misunderstandings that exist. Um, and uh, it's something we have to absolutely address. Um, this bill started uh, this whole idea around school discipline, not just this bill, but lots of our pieces of legislation around school discipline are aimed at addressing the school to prison pipeline. That is, uh, that's an, uh, a term that all of us, regardless of which side of the aisle we sit on, are familiar with. And uh, we know that uh, black Missourians, just like black Americans, face a much higher rate of incarceration uh, than their white peers. And in the school setting, we see the exact same result, even in the youngest grades, kindergarten and first grade. Really uh, good information there to know. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Talking to your kids about the dangers of vaping can be hard. Getting them to listen to hot gossip is easy. So here's some drama you could share with your kid. Dude, did you hear about Cassie and Jake? No, but did you hear that vaping can cause irreversible lung damage and nicotine affects brain development? <gasps> Nuh-uh. You don't need to gossip if you want to have an open conversation about vaping. So if you want to get tips on when and how to talk to your kids, visit talkaboutvaping.org. Brought to you by the American Lung Association and the Ad Council. As a truck driver, I've learned how important road safety is. I know that large trucks need more time and room to stop. That's why I always hang back and follow other vehicles at a safe distance. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, try to remember to always give trucks extra space when you merge in front of them. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for youth. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals into your body. And nicotine, which can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. Learn more at underagedrinking.samsa.gov. We all make choices about alcohol. Kids make choices whether to drink or not. Bye, Dad. Remember, I'm going to Alex's party tonight and sleeping over. Hey, Em. Remind me about that party again. And adults make choices whether to talk about it. That's true of parents and every other trusted adult in a kid's life. Kids want to know our expectations, and they want honest answers in everyday conversations. So talk with your kids and help lead them on a positive path. Because when you talk, they hear you. Learn more at underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. 
Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. Back on Show Me Today, if it was not for a local newspaper that needed a cartoonist, we might never have heard of Thomas Hart Benton, one of the most notable painters of the 20th century. He got his start in Joplin, and Cameron Connor talks to Brad Belk about the painter's youth and how destiny brought Benton back at the tail end of his life. Benton began his career as a professional artist in Joplin, and then nearly seven decades later, he returns on March 24th. Uh, 1973 to present his mural titled Joplin at the turn of the century, 1896 to 1906. Just a little brief um, history of, of Thomas Hart Benton. He was born in Neosho in 1889, and he had a father that was a Missouri congressman. And then his father or grandfather, where he got his namesake, was Thomas Hart Benton. Their connection to, the, to politics had a bearing on his artistic career as well. Uh, when uh, his father was serving for Congress from 1897 to 1905, uh, young Tom took uh, art instruction at the Cochrane Gallery in Washington, D.C., and uh, during the last winter of their tenure in Washington, Tom, at the age of 14, took art classes at Western High School in Georgetown. He always kind of dabbled in art. In fact, uh, much to the chagrin of his mother, Elizabeth, he um, painted one wall uh, in his house, which uh, didn't go over real well with the family. But really, as a teenager, uh, Tom was a a rebellious youth. So when the opportunity for him to possibly come to Joplin uh, to work for uh, with a cousin named Willie McEnany, who owned a surveying business in the lead and zinc fields here in the Joplin area, his parents begrudgingly agreed to let their son go to the godforsaken, rollicking lead and zinc mining community. At this time, no one knew what was ahead for Thomas Hart Benton, nor how his brief stop in Joplin would end up shaping his professional career as a Missouri's most renowned 20th century artist. So although Tom got his wish to get away from parental supervision, which is really what he wanted, he unfortunately got a job that meant work, and that's W-O-R-K, and the manual labor just wasn't uh, up to his fancy. In fact, he states in uh, Thomas Hart Benton, an American original Henry Adams book, states it was a nasty, sweaty job that required lots of walking in the burning sun of diggings over shale and crushed rock, which shimmered in the heat and burned through the leather boots. But then, as we talked about earlier of fate and how things um, miraculously happen, and there was a life-changing experience that occurred to Benton, which he refers to as a quirk of fate. This timeless story originates with Benton sipping a beer at the infamous House of Lords when some roughneck seasoned lead and zinc miners began teasing him about staring at a painting of a nude woman that hung over the bar. In his defense, the 17-year-old Benton proclaimed his interest purely from an artistic point of view. His tormentors fired back saying, so you're an artist, shorty. Well, the five foot five inch Benton responded, yes, by God I am, and I'm a good one. This 
animated bluff led to a job as an artist for the Joplin American newspaper. Back then, a lot of newspapers used sketch artists for illustration purposes. Benton accepted the job as a cartoon artist for the Joplin American at $14 a week. He recalled this was monumental as compared with the $4 I was making by carrying the rod over the hot rock of digging. He then promptly responded, I bade my cousin and surveying outfit goodbye. Summing up his experience at the newspaper, he proclaimed, all summer I worked for the American. In the afternoon, I clamped my foot importantly on the bar rail of the House of Lords and drank beer with the miners, mine owners, and the businessmen and newspapermen. Everything was Jake. I was a man and free. I was completely satisfied, except when I caught sight of my face in the mirror of the bar. It annoyed me that I was so young. Timing is everything. The Joplin American newspaper was in business for a brief period. Two years before or two years later, there would not have been a newspaper for Benton to receive his first paycheck as an artist. You are listening to Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Cameron Connor. We're here for episode three of our series that goes all year long about the 150th anniversary of Joplin, Missouri. And we're here with our community historian, Brad Belk, talking about Thomas Hart Benton, the highly famous American painter. And of all places, he got his start right here. As we know, Brad, Benton went on to have this illustrious career in arts. He's known for the regional movements of art with these swirling, swowing paintings that basically depict a lot of the American lifestyle throughout a lot of his work. But didn't he return in the 1970s and painted a mural of Joplin's centennial celebration? Uh, yes, yes, he did. Uh, in fact, uh, seven dec- decades later, now old Tom, he was new Tom working at the American newspaper, returns. But this time, another employment opportunity emerged from the very community that gave him his start. But on this occasion, the quirk of fate involved an ambitious, sophisticated, persistent lady from Joplin named Mary Curtis Wharton. Mary Curtis Wharton was a tireless supporter of the arts community. While in Joplin, she devoted her life to improving the culture of our city. Her inspiration and introduction to the idea of a Benton mural stems from a local club known as the Ridpath Club, one of Joplin's oldest women's study clubs. For her club program in 1971, Mary Curtis presented biographical sketches covering three Missouri artists. George Caleb Bingham, Joe Beeler, and Thomas Hart Benton. Researching Benton's past, she discovered that the artist began his career in Joplin. At the time, Mary Curtis was serving on the 1973 Joplin Centennial Committee and was president of the Joplin Council for the Arts. Mary Curtis wondered, why not ask Thomas Hart Benton to paint a mural for Joplin's centennial celebration? She convinced the 82-year-old famed artist to paint the mural for the city of Joplin. She insisted that Benton should paint himself into his artwork. This was significant since this was the first and only time Benton would appear in a mural he painted. And so Thomas Hart Benton is convinced to do this mural, and doesn't he do it in his studio in Kansas City? Yes, he does. In fact, uh, the mural was designed, laid out, and painted at his Carriage House studio in Kansas City. And between 1939 until his death in 1975, Benton resided in a two-and-a-half-story house built of native quarried limestone in Kansas City's midtown historic neighborhood of Roanoke, and it's just a a quaint, wonderful neighborhood. A separate appendage to the main house was a carriage house, and Benton converted half of the carriage house into his art studio in the early 1940s. An eight-foot by 12-foot multi-paned window was installed on the north side to capture the best light to paint by. 
the studio space was where he painted the Joplin Centennial mural. The height of the Joplin mural was five foot four inches tall, which allowed Benton to paint standing on the floor. His previous murals were painted hanging from a ladder, which he no longer could physically do as a man in the 80s. Today, the Benton home and studio is listed on the National Register of Historic Places and is recognized as a Missouri State Historic Site. We're here with our community historian, Brad Belk, talking about Thomas Hart Benton. I have been around that area myself, and if you haven't been to it, it's definitely a sight to see, as well as that entire neighborhood, because it's so well kept up and such a historic portion of Kansas City. But going back to the story, Joplin was braced for the big 100-year celebration from Benton's mural when it was unveiled at the City Hall, March 24th, 1973. Tell me about how historic that day was. Well, it was a, it's a definitely a big day in, in the history annals of, of, of Joplin. In March of 1973, the mural was unpacked at Joplin City Hall, then located at 303 East 3rd. And those covering the event had a field day with one particular moment. There's a classic image that shows Benton standing on the mural to determine if it had warped any. Reporters at the time watched him walk on this irreplaceable artwork in pure wonderment. Benton, in his classic form, danced a little jig on the mural before pronouncing it in good condition. He remarked, that sure relieves me, though he was pleased that there was no warping to his artwork. So finally, after great anticipation, the historic day had arrived, and on March 24, 1973, the Benton mural was unveiled at City Hall. The festivities included the U.S. Naval Band, the Missouri National Color Guard, statements from Joplin's first female mayor, Lena Beale, and Congressman Gene Taylor. At the dedication ceremony, Benton was presented a plaque which proclaimed him a member of the House of Lords and designated him as the Earl of Joplin for distinguished service to the community. Upon receiving his title and never missing a beat, Benton joked, I'm glad you didn't elect my wife to the House of Lords, which drew a, a large laugh. Such a fascinating story and especially such an amazing American icon here in Missouri, one of Joplin, Missouri's very own Thomas Hart Benton basically one of the best regionalistic art form painters of his time and definitely a timeless American painter and artist to say itself. This has been Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. I'm Cameron Connor. This is episode three of our series on the 150th anniversary of Joplin, Missouri, taking place about Thomas Hart Benson with, of course, our community historian of Joplin, Brad Belk. Brad, thank you so much for joining us on Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. Show Me Today.